0: Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com. David Eagleman on the science of de- and re This talk took place at the Royal Institute of British Architects in London on the 24th of May, 2012.
1: Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it, especially coming out to a talk with such a ghastly title. But um, it's something that I think is of great importance. And this is what I want to talk with you about tonight, is this issue that I've been thinking a lot about, which is that repeatedly throughout history, groups of people have inflicted violence on other members of the population. And they have inflicted this violence in coordination with the authorities and against groups of people in their society that were no direct threat to them and were defenseless. And so what's going on here? How can we understand this sort of thing, Uh, this facet of, of human behavior? because it's of deep importance for us to understand this if we want to prevent it in the future. So, uh, of course, we're familiar with the Nazis and their killing of millions of people based on religious and ethnic and political um, uh, events. Um, this uh, This here is from the Nanking Massacre in 1937 when the Japanese invaded China and killed hundreds of thousands of unarmed civilians in China and systematically raped between 80 and 100,000 people. Um, this is from 1915. This is the systematic killing of the Armenian population by the Ottoman Turks. And uh, in, it's estimated that between one and one million Armenians were killed during this. Um, and then in, in uh, 1994, in the period of 100 days, uh, the Hutu in Rwanda killed 800,000 Tutsi, And this was um, accomplished with machetes. And at the peak of this, they were actually achieving a higher killing rate with machetes than the Nazis had accomplished with gas chambers. And so the question is, what's going on here? So uh, historians, you know, this stuff is well-documented, and historians point to issues about political and civil strife and economic troubles. But the real issue is that the only way these events can happen is when there's a distinct change in the behavior of individuals. And how can we understand that change in behavior? So what I want to tell you about tonight is the science of what we understand about that. And I want to put together a new framework to see how we can understand this sort of thing and end by saying what we can do about it. So let's start at the very beginning. So it turns out when we think about human evolution, The story that we all know about Darwinian evolution is that it's survival of the fittest, right? So you have to be a really good competitor in order to be able to survive and do well. And that's a pretty good story, but people started realizing there was a little bit of a problem with um, the issue of altruism. How does that explain why people help each other out? That's not taken care of just by thinking about individual selection. And that got people thinking about kin selection. So it turns out that there's this notion of the selfish gene. And if I share some genetic material with my brother, or with my cousins, and so on, then maybe that explains why I want to help them out. That's known as kin selection. In fact, the evolutionary biologist J.S. Haldane uh, once said, I would gladly jump in a river to save two of my brothers or eight of my cousins. And so it turns out that's the way that biologists think about kin selection. But it turns out even that's not enough to explain things. Because in fact, people get together and they cooperate irrespective of kinship. And that led people to this idea about group selection, which is to say, if you are the kind of person who cooperates with other people, then as a group, you all get selected up. As a group, you do better than people over here who aren't very cooperative with their neighbors. And so there have been many books on this. These are just three books from the past year on this issue of group selection. And the the term for this is eusociality. You meaning good or positive. So it's this positive social thing where you get this glue irrespective of kinship that allows you to build tribes and groups and nations. Okay, so so the author Jonathan Haidt uh, gave a nice analogy for this, he said, as a result of this evolutionary history, when you think about humans, we're sort of 90% primates, meaning we're all about the individual competition, and we're 10% honeybee. And by honeybee, he means, you know, sometimes we all come together for the good of the hive. And that's the kind of thing that can't be explained just by individual selection, but instead, it really is this issue of selecting for whole groups that makes us want to work with one another. Now, one of the costs of this is that you get in-groups and out-groups. So let me just concentrate on the in-group part of this for a minute. So what happens with in-groups is you get people saying, okay, look, we're going to cooperate with one another, and we get to enjoy all the benefits of that. We get to cooperate and work together, and everybody benefits as a result of that. And it turns out it's not just humans. There was a very recent study that showed that you even see this in, for example, rhesus monkeys. They have in-groups and out-groups, And this is on an island in Puerto Rico. And what you can do is take pictures of all the monkeys, and then you show the monkeys pictures of the other monkeys. And just by the way that they look and they react, you can measure who's in their in-group and out-group of their monkey troop. And this even works with monkeys who just switched troops. So two weeks ago, these guys were their in-group. Now it's their out-group. And you can see the change in their reaction. So it's fast and dynamically updating all the time. And it shows that monkeys really care about who's in their in-group, and who's in their out-group. And, of course, there's this issue of religion, too. And I know that sometimes the neo-atheists will talk about religion as being like a a pathological virus. And and that's actually not the right way to think about it. From an evolutionary point of view, things are judged by what they cause people to do. And what religions cause is for people to group together, to be eusocial. So what happens with religions is you define a group, you coordinate the behavior of the group, and, um, and you incentivize the group to cooperate and work together. So as, you know, as one evolutionary biologist in the late 1800s said, religion is just, it's just another weapon in the Darwinian struggle for survival. In other words, if it were maladaptive, it would have gone away, but it's actually, it is adaptive because it causes groups to come together and work together. Okay, so what does all this have to do with the brain? Well, it turns out that historically, traditionally, we've always studied the brain by looking at individual bits and pieces of it. So you say, okay, well, this is how vision works, and this is how hearing works, and this is how decision-making works, and so on. And it's only in recent years that people have begun to appreciate that, in fact, a lot of the brain circuitry has to do with this eusociality. A lot of it has to do with how you interact with other brains trust and reputation and allegiances and this has led to a new field called social neuroscience which studies this sort of thing and that's what I'm going to tell you about tonight and what that tells us about group behavior. So I want to start off with a, with a philosophical dilemma um, that uh, some of you may have heard and here, here's how it goes. Uh, it's called the trolley dilemma. It's an old problem and it's that there's a trolley coming down the tracks Barreling along at full speed, and it realizes its brakes are broken. And and you see that there are five workmen farther down the track, and you can see that they are going to get killed, that the trolley is going to run over these five workmen. But it just so happens that you discover you're standing right next to a lever that can switch tracks, and on this other track, you see there's only one workman there. So the question is will you switch the track over so that it kills only one person instead of five? So who'll switch the track? Raise a hand. Okay. Great, who won't switch the tracks? <laughs> okay, I'm not even going to ask you guys why you won't switch tracks. Of course it's logical to switch the tracks, so, so, so only one person gets killed instead of five. Now, here's, this, here's scenario number two. Same thing, the trolley is barreling down the tracks. You see five workmen, they're going to get killed because the brakes are out on the trolley. But this time, you're standing on a little bridge over the tracks. And you notice that standing right in front of you is an obese man. And if you push him off, you realize that his weight will be sufficient to stop the trolley and save the five workmen. So who's going to push the fat man? And who's going to not push the man? Okay, okay. So most people, in the first case, are going to switch the trolley so that one person gets killed instead of five. And in the second case, what I want you to notice, is it's the same calculation. What I'm asking you is, will you sacrifice one life in exchange for five? But most of you won't do that now, which is interesting, right? It's the same math, but you guys won't push the guy on the bridge, so why not? So the neuroscientists Joshua Green and Jonathan Cohen got interested in this question some years ago, and they did neuroimaging on people. They put them in the scanner while they did the trolley dilemma problem. And essentially what they found is this. There are areas of your brain that are involved in math problems that are saying, okay, well, what's one versus five and so on. And they make the calculation and that's what happens. You have other networks in your brain that care about emotional issues. They're simulating things. They're seeing how things feel and it turns out that these areas of the brain. So this is a slice of the brain right down the middle here. These tend to be more along the midline. And it turns out that in the second scenario where you're asking if you're going to push the guy, these areas come online. And that changes your decision making. In other words, emotions, how you feel about it, is a very important part in navigating the decision. The first one is just an easy math problem. The second one is an emotional problem, and it totally changes what you do. And in fact, this is what neuroimaging shows, but the idea that reason and emotion are always fighting with each other, that's a very old idea. So the Greeks had this metaphor that life is as though you are a charioteer and you're being pulled along by the white horse of reason and the black horse of passion and they're always trying to pull you off in opposite directions and your job as the charioteer is to stay down the middle of the road and it's hard right because you've got these two different poles on you okay so this idea that emotions are involved in decision making is actually an old idea and it's now supported by by neuroscience, I just put this picture here because uh, there's a funny experiment where it turns out if you put people in a foul-smelling room, they will make harsher moral decisions. <laughs> and this just illustrates this conflation between how you feel about things, your emotions, and what you think is right and wrong. So it's a very important part of how we navigate our decision-making in life. And you would not want to live in a world where everybody's like Mr. Spock, and doesn't have this emotions, right? Because everybody would just push the fat guy off the bridge and that'd be the end of it. But instead, we use this to steer the sorts of decisions we make. If it feels wrong, we try not to do it. So the question is, what happens with something like this? This is a photograph from World War II. This is a German soldier who's about to execute a mother who's holding her child against her. And um, there are several things to note about this photograph here. First of all, the, the fact that he's about to do this in front of a cameraman, suggests he's got a diminished emotional reactivity to this situation. He's not distressed by the situation. There's also a notion of compartmentalization going on here because this photograph, he actually mailed back to his family. So he's got a family, he cares about his wife and child, and he sends them a picture of executing somebody else's family. So there's this notion where he can take these ideas that are very different and compartmentalize them. So the, the neurosurgeon, Yitzhak Fried, uh, in the late 90s started thinking about this a lot. And he said, you know, when when you look across all these different events in the world, you find this kind of behavior everywhere where people just... It's like they they lose their normal brain function and become somebody different. They act very differently. And he said, when you look at the signs and symptoms, it's almost like there's a syndrome going on here. So he named this syndrome E. And he said there are very particular signs and symptoms that you would look for, just like you would look for coughing and fever with pneumonia. You look for particular things that characterize people behaving like this. So there's this this diminished emotional reactivity. This ability to do these repetitive acts of violence. People maybe start off having a little bit of a hard time with it and very rapidly desensitize. It doesn't bother them anymore. There's, there's this hyper arousal, or as the Germans call it, Rausch, where it's this feeling of elation in doing these acts. Group contagion, which is a very important one, which I'll come back to. And the issue is, you know, everybody's doing it and it catches on and spreads. Um, compartmentalization, I mentioned, where somebody can care about their own family, let's say, and yet at the same time do this sort of thing to other families. And the interesting thing from a neuroscience point of view is that things like language and memory and problem solving, those are working just fine. Those are completely intact. So that's a clue into what's happening under the hood. And what's happening under the hood in the case of syndrome E is something like this. The emotional areas are, are short-circuited. They're not a part of the equation anymore. Those are now out of, they're now out of the equation. So it makes the soldiers in situations like this act just like the guy who's going to push the other guy off the bridge. In other words, their decision making is being steered by parts of their brain that can do logic and reasoning and memory and so on, but not the parts of their brain that normally navigate things. Okay, And what this leads to is a moral disengagement um, What happens is people are like, uh, you know, a car that's a neutral going down the hill. They just don't have these systems anymore that are telling them the right way to steer their morality and their action. Now, how do you study this in the laboratory? Well, there was a recent study where um, people were shown photographs of groups that either sort of counted as groups they admired or groups they felt were more out-groupy, and so here's how it went. Um, if you show people pictures of people they admire, Olympic athletes and hard workers and so on, various parts of the brain line up, but I want to draw your attention to this middle circle right here. That's an area called the medial prefrontal cortex. And that's involved in these emotional systems. And it's also involved in social cognition. Whenever you're dealing with another person, as opposed to an object, that area is active. And it turns out that even if you show people photographs of groups they don't like, people they envy or people they pity, you still get medial prefrontal cortex activation. I'm um, sorry this is cut off here, but but there's this red circle there. That's you still get that active. In other words, people still see them as humans, even though they're outgroupy. But if you go even further along the spectrum of outgroup and show people pictures of people they feel disgusted by, that area turns off. It just doesn't come online. And what that means is that they're viewing these people that they're They're viewing it exactly like they do objects. Because when you show people objects, that area doesn't come online. It always comes online when you're looking at humans, except for really outgroup humans. It just doesn't come online anymore. So when we talk about dehumanization, what we're really talking about is that area of the brain not coming online. That part of the system is just out of the equation now. And now when you're making moral decisions about people who are very much in your outgroup, that part's not steering your behavior. And it turns out that with psychopaths, there are many things wrong with their brain. There um, are essentially congenital problems in their brain. But one of the issues going on is exactly this, where they don't have these areas emotionally steering their behavior. And so they are capable of doing things because they don't care about you. They can't simulate what it's like to be you. They don't have the emotional feeling that's steering around their sorts of decisions. And this is what happens when groups dehumanize their neighbors. So here's a group of German uh, citizens and soldiers uh, having their Jewish neighbors scrub the pavement in front of them. And they're having, they're having a great time laughing here. And what's happening is that because of the social context that allows Syndrome E to happen, and this is what I'll talk about in a moment, is, this, is how it happens socially, these areas are no longer online. And so these are not like humans to them anymore. And of course, this typifies this sort of situation. Here's a quotation from a Japanese general during the invasion of China, he said, well, it's because we thought of them as things, not as people like us. Here's a quotation from a woman in in Rwanda who orchestrated the killing of of thousands of Tutsi. She said, we thought of them as nothing more than insects or cockroaches. Um, Here's from an American sergeant stationed in Iraq, he says, you just sort of try to block out the fact that they're human beings and you see them as enemies. So this typifies, across place and time, this notion of dehumanization, of turning off the parts of your brain that allow you to understand what it's like to be somebody else. Now, it turns out that um, uh, I was following the trial of Anders Breivik. You guys remember, he's the Norwegian who killed 77 young people. I was watching his trial last month in Norway, and, um, and here's what he said that I thought was interesting. He said, one might say that I was quite normal in 2006. I have my doubts about this. But anyway, he said, when I started training, when I commenced de-emotionalizing, and many people will describe me as a nice person or a caring, sympathetic person to friends than anyone, which I also doubt. But but the point that I thought was interesting is that he nailed it. He he knew that his own training regime was about de-emotionalizing, and he said, I've had a dehumanization strategy towards those I considered valid targets so I could come to the point of killing them. I mean, he phrased exactly what I've been telling you so far. He knew what he was doing. Now, his particular strategy for dehumanization was to play hours and hours of violent video games and to do meditation, to really concentrate on meditating to hammer down any emotional response he had to the idea of killing someone. That's the way that he trained. But, but the point is that what he was doing was shutting off the medial prefrontal cortex and other areas involved in emotion. That's what he was doing when he talks about de-emotionalizing. He actually got it exactly right. Now, if you don't have a training regime and you're not that good at turning off your own medial prefrontal cortex, (coughs) governments love to do this for you and that's the art and science of propaganda. So um, here's a poster from World War I. This is an American poster. Here's an American poster from World War II. And what you always do in propaganda posters is you make your enemy less than human. You always make them like an animal. So in this case, the Germans were portrayed as an ape, and he's coming onto America's shores with a big club. The fact that he's got a half-naked, voluptuous woman that he's taking away makes even madder about the whole thing. But it turns out that you know this is really typical of propaganda posters. You always give the enemies fangs and stuff like that. And, and the idea is you want to shut this off. You want to make the population feel like, OK, look, we can do this. We can go to war with these guys because they're not quite like us. They're more like animals. And in fact, when Darwinian thinking got introduced in the 1800s, lots of people took the opportunity to put out pseudoscience suggesting that whoever their enemy was, they're not actually human, but they're less than human. And they used, um, they used uh, you know false Darwinian arguments about it. And so this is a very typical sort of strategy to use. Um, And in fact, I don't know how many of you know this, but when George W. Bush was running for president against Al Gore, he did the same thing. So so his commercial ran and said the Gore Prescription Plan, and then you see this big word rats on the thing. And then after about half a second, you see that the word is zooming in, and the word actually says bureaucrats, and it says bureaucrats decide. But what it starts with is this giant thing that says rats which was something that the Nazis did when they were making films about the Jews. They put this footage. I mean, it's crazy that, uh, and anyway, as soon as this got uh, a lot of attention, the commercial immediately got pulled. But, but the point is that the strategy of dehumanization is, is one that uh, people try to use a lot to make you feel like you don't, um, c- you, don't, you don't have to think about the other person as a human. Now, how do you study this in the laboratory? Well, in 72, A researcher named Albert Bandura did a very simple study. So he had college students uh, come in to do an experiment from different colleges around. So three of you come in at the same time, and you're told that in the other room are three other college students, and they're trying to learn uh, some associations with words, and you guys are there to, to help teach them. And so the idea is that whenever they get a wrong answer, you send an electrical shock over them in the other room, um, but you get to choose how high the level of that shock is from 1 to 10. You get to choose each time. Okay, so that's the experiment. And what happens is just before it starts, the the experimenter running it accidentally leaves the intercom on and you overhear him say, these guys, meaning the, the students that you don't see, those guys are a bunch of animals. Or, in a different condition, he says, oh, these guys are really nice, or in a third condition, he doesn't say anything at all, okay? That's it, the only experimental variable is that you happen to overhear him say something, either calling them animals or not. And so then, as the experiment goes on, every time they get a wrong answer, you get to decide between one and 10, the level of electrical shock that you're gonna send. And what happened is, very clear results, in the dehumanized condition, people sent stronger and stronger shocks. Only difference being that they heard them described as animals at the beginning. Here's the neutral condition, that's sort of the average shock level that they sent. And in the humanized condition, they sent less. And I actually think this is of equal philosophical and scientific importance that they sent smaller shock when you said even a very simple thing that humanized them. And I'm going to come back to that issue. But for now, I want to concentrate on the dehumanization part. OK. So what I've told you so far is sort of the simplest picture that we can make about it. And and I've told you about how dehumanization works where it can sort of be turned on and off by by simple statements and analogies and so on. But now I want to drill down a little bit deeper and show things that are even more subtle, not just on or off, not just human or not, but but things that can be modulated very subtly. And this is one of the things we're studying in my laboratory. So, So let's start off talking about pain for just a second. So it turns out... Let's say you put your hand on the table and I stab your hand with a syringe needle. Um, That activates very particular parts of your brain. This is what's known as the pain matrix. Don't worry about any of the details of it, but a certain network in your brain lights up and that says, ouch, I'm in pain, I'm feeling pain. Now, what is empathy? What if you watch somebody else's hand get stabbed? It's not your hand now, now you're watching someone else's hand. It turns out it's the same area. The same areas become active when you're watching somebody else in pain as when you're in pain. So in other words, it's the same thing. Watching somebody else in pain and empathizing with them is literally feeling their pain. You are running a simulation of what it's like as if that were your hand. That's what empathy is. You're literally simulating what it's like to be the other person. Now, the surprise is, even though this is a very low-level neural response, it can be modulated by what you think about the other person. So there was an experiment done by Tanya Singer in 2006 where she had people play a little little game with other people where they're doing a little exchange of money. And the other person, it turns out, can kind of play unfairly or fairly. So you're either playing against someone who you feel like, oh, yeah, that person did just the right thing or, oh, that person's a little bit of a cheat. And then you see the person get an electrical shock, and the question is, how much does your brain care? And the answer is... Here's a measure of the empathic neural activity. It turns out that just based on their behavior, you stop caring about them. Now, there's a lot of individual difference here. And on average, men show this effect more than women. Um, But what you can see is that this very basic neural response about seeing someone else in pain gets modulated. Now, this is based on their behavior. And one of the things that I started wondering about my work was, could this be based on something that's not even behavior? You haven't even met the person. You've never seen the person. But it's just based on the in group or out group that they're in. Could that actually modulate empathy? So here's what I did. Here's how, here's how this works in neuroimaging. So you're in the scanner. We show you six hands on the screen. Then the computer goes and randomly picks one of them. And that one expands uh, to the middle of the screen and becomes a video. And either you see that hand get touched with a Q tip or it gets stabbed with a syringe needle. And so what we do is we contrast those two conditions and we find out the areas of the brain that are involved. Again, don't worry about any of these details, I just want to indicate that there's this network of empathic areas. It's the same network that I showed you just a minute ago. OK, once we've established this baseline condition, we just make a very simple change, which is now we have the same six hands on the screen appear, but now they all have a one word label. Christian, Jewish, atheist, Muslim, Hindu, Scientologist. A hand gets selected comes to the middle of the screen, and then you either see it get touched with a Q-tip or stabbed. And the question is, what's your in-group, and how does your brain respond to seeing somebody else get hurt? So (coughs) I'll just give you an example of how this goes. So on this axis is time. Here's where the selection takes place. Here's where the touch happens, either the the stab or the Q-tip. And here's the signal that we're measuring from the brain. So in the baseline case here, when you get stabbed, boom, your brain shows a lot of activity in this, in this particular area. It shows an empathic response. When you're touched with the Q-tip, there's sort of nothing going on here. Okay, when you watch the outgroup get stabbed or touched with the Q-tip, what happens is your brain doesn't really show much of a response in either condition. Sorry, this is out-group pain or no pain. Okay, but what happens when you watch your in-group is this. So what happens is, when you watch your in-group in pain, you have this huge neural response, and when they get touched with a Q-tip, you don't really have anything. So what happens is you've got this in-group empathic response, and your brain just doesn't care when you see an out-group member get stabbed. Now again, there's a lot of individual variability, and one thing we're doing right now is studying what things those correlate with. So, So we measure lots of other features about people. We have them fill out empathy questionnaires, questionnaires about their religious certainty, about their right-wing authoritarianism, all kinds of other features, and we're, we're, we're studying that data right now. But what's clear is that for some people more than others, it's absolutely modulated by who's in their in-group and out-group. And what I thought was really funny and interesting is that we even see this for atheists. Atheists care when they see an atheist hand gets stabbed, and they don't care when they see someone else hand gets stabbed. So what it means is it's not, uh, it's not some deep indictment about religion, instead it's a very simple thing about labels. It's about whose team you're on. And, and I should mention that this applies for every group that we've mentioned equally. Okay. Um, now, something that got me interested is that as we were rolling on these experiments was how flexible these sorts of designations are. So if you look, for example, during World War II, um, when the... You know, the Americans and the Soviets hated each other. And then in World War II, they were both aligned against the Axis powers. So now they were buddies. They were clapping each other on the back, sharing cigarettes and so on. As soon as World War II ended, they were back to hating each other. And I thought it's interesting how flexible these things are. So here's what we did to, to try to get at this issue. Um, now we do the same experiment. We put you in the scanner, and it says the year is 2013, and the, we pick three random religions, have teamed up against the other three randomly selected religions. Okay, so now... You're in the scanner, and you see the six hands on the screen, but now you've sort of got teammates. These other religions that you didn't care about a minute ago, and now they're on your team. And the question is what happens when you see someone else's hand get stabbed, and they might happen to be on your team? And, and the answer is we find regions in the brain that are what we call uh, coalition sensitive or alliance sensitive, which is to say, which is to say... Now, you know, five minutes ago, they they didn't give any care about the outgroup. And now, just because we've told you in a single sentence narrative that this outgroup is on your team, now you kind of care when you see them get stabbed. It's fascinating how flexible this is. Not all areas of the brain change are single, but several of them do. And so what this means is even though these labels, something like a religious label, runs so deep, right, and yet it's so flexible. What's got me interested in doing is trying a third phase of the experiment, which is to to really understand about the arbitrariness of these labels. Um, And so what we do is you come into the lab and uh, I hand you a coin and I say, you're going to toss this coin. If it's heads, you're an Augustinian. If it's tails, you're a Justinian. That's all I tell you. I don't tell you anything else. So you toss the coin. Let's say you're a Justinian. Um, I now hand you a bracelet. I hand you a bracelet according to which team you're on. You put it on. It's a nice little thing. Um, Okay. So now you go in the scanner. And I give you a one-sentence narrative. The Justinians and the Augustinians are two warring tribes. And then I remind you, remember, you're a Justinian. And then we put you in the scanner. And it's the same thing. We choose hand, We stab Justinian or Augustinian hands. And the question is, does your brain care more about a team that you were arbitrarily assigned to? And you know it was arbitrary because you're the one who flipped the coin. And the answer is yes. We're just analyzing this data right now. But that's what happens. It's a smaller effect but a totally arbitrary team label is sufficient to make you care more at a very low level. This is a very basic neural response. So this is the kind of thing we're studying right now, and the reason it's important is because what it gives us is a diagnostic tool for measuring the degree of in-group, out-group. In other words, how much do you care about your in-group and how much do you not care about your out-group, and that tells us the difference there. We can quantify that, and this gives us a tool into the future to understand the effect of rehumanizing narratives, what are the different interventional strategies that we can use to actually make these come closer together so I'll come back to that at the end okay now uh, okay so I've told you so far about humanization sort of being able to turn on and off and then a very particular example of, of empathy where you're simulating what it's like to be someone else now that can be modulated now I want to drill down a little bit deeper into the heart of some of the issues which is that When you look at people who are behaving in these very violent acts throughout history, the assumption has been for a long time, well, it's something about the disposition of those people. There's something really wrong with those people. But this started coming into question because there were so many hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of people participating in this. And it's a funny theory to say, well, all of them had something wrong with their brains. Instead, what it led people to think is maybe there are situational forces that can make people behave in these incredibly awful ways. So there's something to be understood about these situational forces here of social context that cause people to behave a certain way. And and of course, what this leads to is the question of, could I behave that way if I were in a situation? And this makes us all very uncomfortable to even think about it because we know that we're good people and we're not going to behave in these sorts of ways. Um, But the reason that it's an important question to ask is because social psychologists got really interested in what was happening with what came to be known as the banality of evil. So after World War II, for example, here's Adolf Eichmann on trial. You know, he was one of the main coordinators of the final solution for the Jewish population. He had the blood of hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people on his hands. And the thing is, as Hannah Arendt put it as she covered his trial, she called this the banality of evil because there was nothing particularly special about Eichmann. He said, I was just doing my job, right? He was part of this machinery. He, was, he had an opportunity to impress you know, his wife and people around him. He, everybody else was doing that. There were all kinds of situational forces acting on him. This is no defense of his behavior, but what it does encourage us to, us to do is try to understand what are these situational forces that steer whole populations of people to do incredible things that, in other situations, you would never even consider. And this is why the whole issue of situational forces came to the forefront. So right after World War II, there was a, a research psychologist named Solomon Ash. And he decided, I want to understand how it is that social forces can change people's decision making. So he did a very simple experiment. He, you, you come in to, to participate in an experiment, and you see that there are seven other people there to participate as well, just like you. And, um, and you guys are all shown a line on the screen of a certain length. And then you're shown a second screen and asked, OK, which, which line matches in length there? And so you have to pick which line you think is the, of the same length. OK. But it just so happens that you're sitting in the eighth chair. And so the first person registers his answer, and then the next person registers her answer, and so on, and on down the line. And it turns out that all these people are shills. They're all plants from the experimenter. They're not just like you, even though they appear to be just like you. And sometimes what they'll do is they'll all say the wrong answer, but they'll all say it confidently. They'll maybe pick the shortest line there, and they'll say, oh, yeah, it's definitely the top one. And you know it's not. You know it's the middle one, but everybody in person number one, person number two, number three, they're all saying that. And so what do you do when it comes time for your turn? Are you going to say, you know what, you guys are all wrong, it's the middle one, or do you think, gosh, there's something wrong with me? Now, what happened is um, Solomon Ash figured that probably a lot of people, he didn't even think this would work. He figured people would go ahead and stick with what they thought was the right answer. But the results were shocking, which is that almost everybody conformed to the group. Whatever the group was doing, they were reluctant to do otherwise, even though this was a clear, easy, perceptual task with a right and a wrong answer. So what happened is Ash had a student in his lab, a young man named Stanley Milgram, who who watched this. And and, uh, Milgram, also being Jewish and having seen what just happened in World War II, was very interested in these issues, but he saw that there was no, you know, social consequence to this experiment. It's not a moral decision of any sort. It's just a very simple perceptual decision. And he decided to do something um, that drilled a lot deeper. And so... It's one of the most famous experiments in psychology, but not everyone knows the details, so let's just walk through this. So, so first of all, you see an ad, and it says, you know, come, we're, we're studying something about memory. Studying about memory, come, we'll pay you, okay, so you show up to the thing, and you're told, okay, great, you're, you're going to sit here, you're the teacher, and there's a learner over here on the other side of this glass, um, uh, or, or on the other side of the wall, so you can't actually see him. You see him get strapped in. but. But what happens with the learner is, this is a study on the effect of uh, punishment on how well you can learn something. So the learner comes in and he gets strapped into a chair with a device that gives him an electrical shock. And And whenever he gets the right answer, the experimenter goes on to the next one. Whenever he gets the wrong answer, your job is to deliver an electrical shock. So here's the learner here, this happens to be Mr. Wallace, was this guy's name. He gets strapped in. The experimenter is here. You're sitting over here in this other room. And in your room, you've got this device here. OK. So what happens is you're told, when he gets the wrong answer, I want you to hit the lowest level of shock. So, so that's pretty straightforward instructions. He's going along. He's trying to learn the associations between different pairs of words. He gets the wrong answer. Bzz, you give him a mild shock. And it's labeled. It says mild shock at this end of the day. Okay. So, he's going along, he gets another wrong answer. You're told, okay, each time he gets another wrong answer, you have to increase the level of the shock. So, you hit the second button. Okay, this goes on. Every time he gets a wrong answer, you have to go up. Well, you notice that as you look up towards the right side of the box, this this is an actual photograph of it. It goes to extreme intensity, and at the right side, it goes to severe shock. Okay, so you're a little worried about this. As as he's going along, you're hoping that he'll get the right answer, that you won't have to do this. But what happens is you're being asked to give harder and harder shocks. Well, what happens is even at the low end here, when you give a shock, the guy says, you hear the guy, he says, ow! And as you're going up higher, he says, ow, that really hurt! And as you go up higher, he says, let me out of here. I don't want to be a part of this experiment. So you look pleadingly to the experimenter, and the experimenter in his white coat there says keep going. So maybe you keep going. So you keep going, and the guy says, ow, I want out of here, let me out. And the experimenter says to you, keep going. And you say, I don't want to keep going. He's obviously in pain, and the experimenter says, don't worry, I will take full responsibility here. You are not responsible for any of this, you're just participating in this experiment. So the question is, how high do you keep going? So at some point when you're around here, He stops responding. You don't hear anything anymore. You press the button, you don't hear any cries anymore. Is he unconscious? Is he dead? You're not getting any response at all. Okay, so the question is, will people keep going even beyond that level? Will anybody go all the way to the top? So what Stanley Milgram did is he went and talked to a group of psychiatrists, and he said, what's your prediction? How high, how many people do you think will go all the way to the top and give someone the strongest electrical shock, even though the person's at this point already unconscious or maybe dead. And so the psychiatrist said 1% was their prediction because the psychiatrists are experts in human nature and they're thinking about this in a dispositional way. In other words, who has that disposition that they'd be able to do that? Only somebody who's clearly psychopathic It's somebody maybe only makes up 1% of the population. So who's going to do that? So it turns out that... 65% of Milgram's subjects went all the way to the top. They delivered 450-volt shocks to this pretend subject over there. So Milgram published a book, one of the most famous books in this area, called Obedience to Authority. Because he couldn't believe this. He couldn't believe that people would listen to him all the way up to the very top, where they were perhaps killing somebody that's a total stranger to them, who had done nothing to them. And in the book, he did 19 different versions of the experiment to to tweak every possible parameter here. And he figured out particular rules, like if you actually have to be closer to the learner, then compliance goes down. If you have to actually see him, he's near you. Um, Similarly, if the experimenter is farther away from you, then compliance also goes down. And and in the extreme case, if the experimenter is just talking to you on a telephone, compliance only drops to 20%. 20% is still really high, for delivering these sorts of electrical shocks. He did this with women participants instead of men. And even though the women expressed more stress about it, they still did exactly as much shocking. 65% of them went up to the top. He wanted to make sure that this had nothing to do in particular with Yale University, where he was from. He wanted to make sure it was something about the academic prestige. So he set up an office in downtown New Haven, Connecticut, and he just rented some random office space and just said he was a random researcher, and people still complied just as much. So he figured out all of these different things going on here. And and, and this was was one of the most shocking illustrations of how easy it is to get people from the social context to listen to, to authority. Now, it turns out that there is another kind of social influence too, which is the influence of your peers. And it happens that Milgram had a high school friend named Philip Zimbardo. Milgram ended up at Yale, Zimbardo ended up working at Stanford, and and he was really interested in the same problem. And so he did, Zimbardo did what's the other most famous experiment in psychology, which is the Stanford Prison Experiment. So what he did is he recruited people, he was very interested in how prison systems run and why people behave the way they do in prisons. So he recruited people for a two-week study, and he said, look, we will pay you for your time. You'll either be randomly assigned to the role of a guard, or a prisoner. He did full psychological tests on people so that he was sure that he had everybody in a normal range, essentially random research participants. There was nothing particular about them. And he randomly assigned half of them to be guards and half to prisoners. And the guards, he gave them things like, you know, uh, glasses to cover their eyes, he gave them billy clubs, stuff like that. The prisoners, he stripped of all their clothing except for uh, a simple gown. And he made things as realistic as possible. So he actually picked up the prisoners in police cars and brought them in and had them handcuffed and so on and checked in. And he had three different shifts of guards that would switch off every eight hours, whereas the prisoners actually lived there in this basement, which was set up to be just like a jail cell. And many of you probably know the outcome of this experiment, which is that he had to shut it down early because right away, the prisoners and the guards fell into these roles and the guards started acting so brutally towards the prisoners and so creatively evil and coming up with, with punishments and rules and so on that everybody involved became psychologically traumatized. I mean, very quickly, the guards were stripping the prisoners naked, getting you know, taking away food from them, taking their beds away, um, locking them in solitary confinement, making them do lots of... Um, arbitrary things, so they had to line up to count off, to do this count off thing. And that was a perfect time for the guards to make up arbitrary rules just to torture them. Say, okay, now you have to do it backwards. Now you have to sing. No, you're not singing sweetly enough. You have to do it again. And they would do this for hours and just torture these guys. And what happened is everybody was completely shocked and turned upside down by the results of this experiment because these were just normal young men who, by being put in these roles, ended up behaving so differently. And and Zimbardo wrote a great book on this called *The Lucifer Effect about how people can turn into such bad actors um, uh, in, in situations. And what Zimbardo really emphasized is, look, there's this real situational thing that's going on when you give people particular roles. But it's not just that. It's that you have to understand the whole system, right? Because what happens in prisons is not unique to the Stanford Prison Experiment. This is what always happens in prisons because the whole system is set up this way, where you've got the guards and the prisoners, and they've got their roles, and the guards want total compliance, and the prisoners want to resist that, and so the guards will keep upping the arms race until they're absolutely certain they can get the compliance from the prisoners. And therefore, it is no surprise what happened in Abu Ghraib, where, where photographs emerged of torture and humiliation of of insurgents being held there. So this is exactly the kind of stuff that happened in the Stanford Prison Experiment. Here's two guys being uh, stripped naked and humiliated, men being terrorized by dogs. Um, Here's a man who was told that he's going to be electrocuted as soon as he loses his strength and falls off of this box. I'm sorry, the slide's cut off, but what's over here is an American soldier who's uh, dealing with his digital camera to take a picture. And of course, there's someone else taking this picture here. Zimbardo's point is, It's not as easy as thinking about this as a few bad apples in the system, which is how the army tried to portray this. They said, we are shocked at what happened at Abu Ghraib. There were obviously some bad apples in this situation who behaved badly. And Zimbardo's point is, it's not that. It's a systemic problem. It's a system that sets up particular situations. Again, this is not in defense of the people who did this, but it is important to try to figure out how to build or repair these systems so that this doesn't happen. And just uh, about 30 days ago now, um, I was walking through the airport and heard CNN that, that several more pictures had just emerged of soldiers who were posing with dead members of the Taliban uh, and posing with them doing things, having them hand on them and so on, and some things with body parts. And so what I thought was interesting is the headlines. So in the LA Times, it said, photo of U.S. soldiers posing with Afghan corpses, uh, uh, yeah, prompt condemnation, and the subtitles, American officials denounce the actions of troops, Photographs with dead insurgents and their body parts. Give me a break. The idea is the army says, Look, we want you to go over there. We want you to kill these guys, wreck their roads, burn their bridges, but don't take any pictures with them because that's disrespectful. Now, the thing is, they can't, this act, this pretending that there's condemnation going on here is so silly because it's part of the system, it's part of the situational variables that get set up here. You set up these young men and women. To have vim and vigor and go out and kill the enemy and so on, you've got propaganda, you dehumanize the enemy and so on, and then you say, oh, we are outraged. We're shocked that something like this could happen. And by the way, just as a quick side note, it turns out that with digital photography, these things surface and everyone thinks it's some awful new thing, but this is as old as war itself. People always pose with the dead bodies of their enemies. I mean, this goes way back. And before photography, they would do things like cut off people's ears or take out teeth or stuff like that and make belts and necklaces out of this. There is nothing new going on here. Again, this is not a defense of that behavior, but it is to say there's something about the situational variables that change the way people make decisions in these situations. Okay, I want to mention one other thing about social context, which is this, which is this contagion issue. So it turns out that in the, uh, in the worst, most violent neighborhoods in Chicago, there is really awful gang violence where often... Uh, you know, three, four people a day are getting killed. And what happens is somebody gets killed and then the next person is defending that person's honor and so on and the cousin and this and that. And people are killing each other in these neighborhoods all the time. It's so violent. So there's a, a, a friend and colleague of mine named Dr. Gary Slutkin who's an epidemiologist. And he looked at this situation. He lives in Chicago. He looked at the situation and he thought, you know, look, I study epidemics. And epidemics are where you have these viral patterns going around. And he said, why can't we look at violence that way? What if violence is like an epidemic that spreads? You remember in in Syndrome E, one of the issues was group contagion, right? So he said, look, there are all these social programs to try to combat poverty and housing issues and education issues, all in the hope of stemming violence. But what if we just try to stem the violence itself? What if we address that directly? So he started an organization called Ceasefire, whose motto is Stop Killing People. And the idea with ceasefire is to understand how violence spreads in the community and how to stop it. How you can interrupt the violence so that just like any disease epidemic that you want to get down below a tipping point, how you get this down below a tipping point. And one of the things, so, so, um, so Gary set this up. It's been a tremendously successful community intervention program for violence intervention. And one of the things I'm doing now is I'm working with Gary to study, to do neuroimaging on the high-risk youth in these neighborhoods and try to figure out what's going on. And the reason it's so important is because of these social context issues. So it turns out that everybody knows that in these neighborhoods, a young man will commit an act of violence in front of his peers. But he won't do it in front of his grandmother. If his grandmother's watching, he won't do it. Now, that's very interesting, right? Because it's the same hardware, but he's running a different software program depending on who's watching him in that instant. So it's a very... It's a very fast switch in terms of social context. And the reason we need to understand this is so that we know how to build and optimize community intervention programs. And so really the heart of what Gary is doing here is setting it up so that there are community expectations. So that if you, res- you might be mad that somebody's insulted you, but if you respond with violence, you will be ostracized by community elders. And that's a very clever move. It's a way of studying what's going on and using that to try to steer things right. Which leads me to the final point, which is, what can we do as we understand these things? How can we make things better when we understand it? So the first thing that I want to point out that I think is so critical is the issue of education. So what really comes out of the Milgram experiments and the Zimbardo experiments and stuff like that is an opportunity for us to teach the next generation about these so it becomes part of their background fabric. They know about these experiments and they know what to do about it. And one of the things that Milgram wrote about in his book, he said, look, I'm going to take, take what we learned and distill it down to all the rules that you need to have in place if you want people to listen to you if you're in a position of authority. So, for example, he realized with his different experiments so on, first of all, you need to prearrange some form of contractual obligation. In this case, it was, we're going to pay you four bucks and then you're, gonna be, hey, you're going to participate in this experiment. You give participants meaningful roles, like, okay, you're a teacher, you're a guard, and so on, and those activate particular response scripts. People feel like, oh, I know exactly what to do with that. Um, you present basic rules to be followed. Okay, when he gets the answer wrong, you move up to the next level of shock, stuff like that, and then arbitrarily those can be changed later. Um, you change the semantics of the act if you want people to listen to you. Instead of calling it hurting victims, you call it helping the experimenter. Uh, you allow for diffusion responsibility. So you remember I mentioned in this experiment, he says, don't worry, I'm responsible. I'll be responsible for anything that happens to him. Just keep going. Just keep pressing the shock lever. Um, start the path with small steps. Okay, just give him a little mild electric shock, and then as it goes on, you just a little more, just a little more, and so on. And it's like the frog in the frying pan. People are good at following those. Um, make exit cost high. You don't let the person leave the experiment, but you do allow them to express... Distress you do allow them to complain because that makes people feel better if they get to they'll still go up to 450 volts But they'll feel better about themselves if they said oh, I really feel uncomfortable I don't want to do this they still do it, but that's one way to keep them in it Okay, so the point is Milgram's able to List across you know places and times all these things that you have in common when you get people to have blind obedience to authority This is what we need to teach our children so that they know the signs to look for so that they know not to fall for these sorts of things. Okay, that's number one. Um, oh, and offer a larger goal, sorry, which is, this is ideologies. So in the case, you know, in the case of the Milgram experiment, it was as simple as we're trying to study the science of memory and how that relates to pain and whether that makes people's memory better. But in the case of, of many of these social awful things that happen, it's we're giving you a safer country, we're cleaning our country of ethnic group XYZ, that sort of thing. Okay. That's number one. Number two is social modeling. So, you know, we've been talking as though everybody catches syndrome E, but in fact, there are always heroes who stand up against authority. This is uh, a group known as the White Rose. It was a student group in Nazi Germany that put all of their efforts into making and disseminating flyers and pamphlets against the actions of the Third Reich. Tragically, they were uh, captured and rounded up and they were all executed by the Nazis. But this is the kind of thing for us to teach our children about celebrating these heroes who stand up against authority so that there's a social modeling that's possible there so the next time somebody's in that situation they've at least got a template that they can think about following. Um, The third thing I think we can do about it is thinking cleverly about social structuring. So this is a a picture of the Iroquois uh, Native Americans who live up essentially where upstate New York is. they, um, they're known as the League of Peace and Power, but they weren't always known as that. 400 years ago, this was six different tribes who were always fighting with one another. And, and what happened in the 1600s is they were, they were combined by a guy who's known as the Great Peacemaker. He combined them, so they're all one nation, but that's not enough. It turns out that if you push people together, you, know, you have these alliances, but those can fall apart easily. The very clever part of the way this is structured is, in each tribe people belong to one of 12 clans. Actually, sorry, one of nine clans. So I might be a member of the Seneca tribe, and I'm a hawk, and you're a member of the Seneca tribe, and you're a turtle, or you're a wolf, or so on. And the thing is, the clans cross-cut against the tribes. And so the idea is, how are the Seneca going to fight against the Mohawk when I'm a bear and you're a bear, and he's a hawk and she's a hawk over there? So the thing is, by cleverly structuring it, you prevent things from happening. And so it's probably naive for us to think about obtaining world peace by getting everyone to get along because we're very hardwired for in-group, out-group. But you can structure things carefully so that things are counterbalanced so that people can't go fighting against one another. And this is a very clever example of that, I think. And then the last thing is research. Um, you know, I mentioned Zimbardo's idea was to understand the system instead of trying to cure the individuals in it and say, oh, here are some bad apples, we're gonna figure out how to cure them, because it just keeps happening over and over. It's not about the bad apples, it's about the system. And then I mentioned the, the experiments I'm doing in Chicago right now, we're trying three different kinds of interventions using neuroimaging to figure out what is it that causes people who are going to be aggressive in a situation to say, okay, you know what? I'm gonna slow down, I'm gonna cool off, I'm not gonna do that. And that allows the violence to not spread like a contagion, but instead stops it early, just the way you would address an epidemic. Okay, so the main thing is in some sense what I've been telling you about with social neuroscience has to do with how we come to care about others. These systems in the brain that are evolved in emotion that allow us to care about anyone else. And this is what we have evolved to be. We've evolved for eusociality. We're not independent competitors, we're meant to be a group. And the reason I think this is so absolutely critical, to study is because this is what's going to define our future. I mean, we pour millions, hundreds of millions, into studies of things like autism and Alzheimer's and so on. And that's terrific. But this kind of thing that I'm talking about tonight, this affects our species in a much deeper way. And there's very little research about this. And so my mission is to understand this more deeply because this is going to be the future of whether we make it or not. So thank you very much for your attention. I'll take any questions. Hi, I have two quick questions if you don't mind. I think you can answer them both sure. swiftly. The first is if you were asked, if you were called on behalf of a def- uh, defendant, say an American soldier who was a partic- participant in torture, would you testify on his behalf and explain what you explained tonight? And the second one is, today the the best-selling drugs, uh, pharmaceuticals are antidepressants and anti-ulcer medications. 30 years from now, will there be a pharmacological solution prospectively to what you're talking about? Uh, Thanks for those questions. I I think it would be difficult if a soldier were on trial, and this, by the way, Philip Zimbardo does testify uh, with the Abu Ghraib hearings, for example, about situational dynamics. And maybe I would do so, too, because I think it's important. The fact is, it's hard to say somebody should be exculpated just for that reason. So I wouldn't want to jump in and say they should just be let off the hook. But part of the judicial system is to say, look, if we put people in the right sorts of situations, can they be reintegrated into society and do the right thing? So I would try to push things towards that direction. Um, As far as pharmaceuticals of the future, I mean, I'm not really that big a fan of pharmaceuticals in the the first place. So... um, I thought you were going to ask something about ADHD drugs or something, because those are, you know, they're one of the most prescribed, I mean, everybody's on speed. I don't know if it's the same here, but in in America, all the kids are are on speed. So anyway, um, (laughs) the question is, your question, I guess, was would you use pharmaceuticals to try to change people in the situation? I'm sort of a libertarian, so I don't like the idea ever of a government being able to muck with the biology of its citizens. So I would never be in favor of any sort of pharma, Psychological intervention by authority figures.
2: Uh, Is this on? Yes. Um, So I'm just thinking about how you can apply syndrome E with things like maybe eating and wearing animals. Um, People compartmentalize um, what's actually happening to animals before they eat them. You know, you buy a pack of ham in the supermarket, people just think that it's food, um, but actually a lot of sufferings going on there. Is that syndrome E? Would you say?
1: Um, I don't know if it's syndrome E, in that it doesn't include things like the elation uh, about doing it and so on. Uh,
2: there is a uh, there is a group mentality. There is a we, we reinforce it. Society thinks it's okay. It's never an issue. So we sort of that 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 encapsulates one of your theories about um, it begins with the G Guardian. Okay. The
1: so, so it's a very interesting question you're asking because the difficulty is knowing where to draw the line. So, so you might say, look, animals have feelings too, which I, I agree with that totally. They have some degree of consciousness and so on. So you might say, how can people dehumanize animals? We should bring them up into this category. But you, one still has to draw a line in the sand, for example, about where you're going to eat. So what you're really addressing are societal and cultural norms. Um, I, don't, it's,
2: I don't... I don't mean like, you know... You, you know, treating them with, uh, like they're humans, I mean, treating them with a modicum of, of respect about how they physically feel after being tortured, you know, that's, that's the concern I'm sort of outlining. Yeah,
1: it's a very interesting question. I don't know what to say about it, except that I don't think it's exactly the same as Syndrome E, which is characterized by a sudden onset, like a group contagion, whereas the point you're raising, which is a good one, is that cultural norms have some relationship to that. But the thing that's special about syndrome is people acting in a normal eusocial way and then as a group sort of contagiously switching over to this other kind of behavior where it's repetitive, it's it's always based on ideology. I don't think I put that on the list, but it's this ideological obsession with a bigger idea. It's this elation that's involved in cleansing particular ethnic groups. So I think it's slightly different, but I take your point that there's a relationship there with cultural norms.
0: Well, there was a, uh, a speech given to this, a group like this by Stephen Pinker. He wrote a book called *The Better Angels of Our Nature*, and he also was a is a neuropsychiatrist, I think. But would you agree he, with? I have a couple of questions relating to to uh, his book, uh, and one is: Would you agree with uh, progressive improvement from outrageously horrible towards somewhat less horrible over the uh, last couple of thousand years, and and even last? 50 years, and uh, do you see reasons for uh, further optimism in some of the things maybe that he's talked about in terms of behavior, people?
1: Thank you for that question. For those of you who haven't read Pinker's book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, he makes these statistical arguments about how if you lived in the 1500s, even though we tend to retrospectively romanticize things, in fact, it was awful. Your lifespan would be short. Your education would be terrible. Your probability of dying of disease or warfare was much higher. And as we've gone along, things have just gotten better and better and better. Um, I think the argument is generally sound. Uh, There's another book by Matt Ridley called The Rational Optimist, which has a very similar uh, view on it. And so that's the good news. The bad news, of course, is that at the same time, um, we're developing better and better technologies for killing groups of people. And so, you know, 60 years ago with the Holocaust, that's not that long ago. I mean, it's very recent. And now our technology has developed so much, I can't take the Pinker and Ridley argument to say we're not gonna have World War III because we certainly might have World War III. All their argument is that on average, if you sort of average over the 20th century, it's better than the 15th century and the 10th century and so on, but but the point is that we've got this countervening effect of, of worse bombs. Thanks for that question. Who's got the microphone next?
0: Uh, yeah, have,
1: have there been any tests run on people who actually have been educated about those effects, i.e., to check whether or not really, as you point, um, that we need to ed- educate people about those syndromes. Is it, I mean, have you run tests where uh, pe- how people educated about those, you know, the banality of evil, react to those tests? That's a terrific question. I, to my knowledge, those tests have not been done. Um, Here's what happened in, in, uh, when, when Milgram ran these experiments in the 1960s. You didn't need institutional review board approval from the ethics community at your university the way that you do now. So he was able to pull these off. Now it would be essentially impossible to run those experiments. But I think it's a shame because in answer to your point, I think we'd find that the compliance rate is much less now. Why? Because every psychology student reads about the Milgram experiment. And, and you, get this, you get this very healthy skepticism about, about authority figures. So I think the fact that it's part, Actually, I'm just curious. How many of you had heard of the Milgram experiment? Yes, that's great. I mean, that's exactly what you want, is for everybody to know. But it's part of the social dialogue. And then, next time one's in that situation, you at least have an opportunity to say, wait a minute. I'm not going to go that direction. So the test hasn't been done, but I'm very optimistic about what the results would be. Yes
0: i have two questions one is can you apply this to behaviors that are less radical so i'm hoping and imagining most people in this room haven't had to go through you know haven't had these sorts of behaviors but i suspect we all have behaviors whether it's in personal life or in business where you know you treat people in a way which is not nice or if you take bullying and all these things in organizations can you apply this and if you can how do you help people change those behaviors and the second question, a bit related to the one that was just asked, have you seen what effect this might have? If you go and teach this to people in gangs in Chicago, Does how long does it take for the knowledge to alter the brain? And also, how long does it take to indoctrinate people to do these things?
1: Okay, very good questions. Um, as far as how long it takes to indoctrinate people, historically, when you look at things like what happened with the Germans or the Turks or the... Uh, the Japanese with the Nanking Massacre and so on. It's, it's actually a slow process. You marinate in this political culture for years and years where you see them as the enemy, you blame them for your problems, you have different uh, problems with some group of people. And so, so that seems to take a, a while to indoctrinate people. Um, it's an interesting question because what we're doing with the gangs in Chicago isn't about educating about you know, blind obedience to authority or something. Instead, it's just trying to stem violence by leveraging the things that we know about violence, like you'll do it in this social context, but you won't do it in this social context. Um, One of the guys who works with, he he works on the street with the high-risk youth, um, you know, he was a former gang member himself, and he was just telling me, I was just in Chicago two days ago working on this, and he was saying how, you know, he's got a nephew who's in prison who's very violent and aggressive, But the nephew will never act that way in front of him just because he respects him because he's the older uncle and so on. So somehow the social context absolutely changes the program that you're running. And that's all we're trying to do is leverage that aspect to figure it out. We're actually trying a couple of other interventions too. One of them is just this issue about interrupting and reframing. So, you know, some guy's car window gets broken and he says, I'm going to go kill the guy who did it. And so the idea is you get up in his face and you say, look, if you go do that and you end up in jail, who's going to be with your girl? And so he sort of, you know, thinks about it, makes him mad or whatever. But it's just a way of reframing the issue to to try to help not act on impulses but have more long-term decision-making. So there are various things we're doing there that's not based on, you know, education. It's based on... um, Finding ways to leverage these things and get the emotional circuits back into gear, and so on. Was I hope I there was another part to your question? I think I might have forgotten by now. Oh, Uh, yeah. I don't. I don't know. I mean, the thing, the thing about something like Syndrome E is it's so different from the norm, and it's so horrific what people can do to each other that when somebody's just sort of acting badly in the workplace or communities and people are just a little bit mean or something, it's, it's almost like it's a different thing. It's not that they've completely dehumanized the other to the extent that they can murder them. So I think it's maybe a little bit different. Okay, who's got the microphone? Oh, it's, it's, sorry. Uh, y- yes, thank just you. Just
0: thinking a little bit about what's going on in the world right now, I'm sure you're familiar
1: with. Uh, all the fun going on in Syria and whatnot. Uh, at a sort of more regional level, uh, you have this issue between um, Shia and
0: Sunni and Alawites. If you had a magic wand, um,
2: access to all the leaders, is there anything you would do or say, knowing what you know, that could shift things even slightly?
1: Yes. Um, I think the first thing is, if one had all the resources to do so, I would do like the Six Nations of the Iroquois did, where I'd try to make sure that across the Shia and the Sunni and so on, there was some other cross-cutting thing that made them feel like, well, I don't really want to fight against that guy because he's also part of whatever. So to whatever extent you could try to tease out some other relationship, that helps to hold everything into balance, which is maybe the best you can hope for is just just to hold the balance there. Um, There might be other interventional strategies. I think that when the you know, when other countries say, if you respond with violence we are going to impose sanctions on you, that's pretty similar to to, uh, uh, somebody in a gang whose grandmother says, if you do this violent act I'm going to be really disappointed in you. Um, You know, maybe it's sort of the same issue. Ostracism and so on plugs into very basic neural circuits. In fact, just as a quick side note, if you're in physical pain, you know I showed you there are particular areas that light up, it's the same if you're ostracized. Like if you're the last guy picked for the basketball team, those same areas light up. So uh, anyway, these are, yeah, that would be the, the best hope that I could think of.
0: How do you explain the uh, 35%?
1: The 35% who did not go all the way up to 450 volts. Thank God there's that 35%. And those are the people we need to socially model. And those are the people who perhaps were raised in households where they were always asked to question authority. And, you know, even though we talk about these terrible events, what happened in Nazi Germany and in Nanking and so on, even there, there were always people who, who hid Jews, who took Chinese and helped them and so on. So, so thank goodness that those people exist. And our job really is to take that segment of the population and cultivate it and expand that thank you with attachment theory i have i have not thought deeply about attachment theory You mean between a mother and a child i, I have not thought about how that how that ties into this is uh, psychopathic behavior capable of modification very sadly it turns out that there is no rehabilitative strategy for psychopaths at this time just so everybody's clear, a psychopath is somebody who, because of differences in their brain that are measurable, um, they don't care about you, they will, they're you know, selfish and narcissistic, and they're trying to get what they want, and to, to, to them, you are a pawn on the chessboard, that they will go around, if they happen to be aggressive, they'll hurt you, things like that. Um, it's a very worrisome 1% of the population. And I should just mention, by the way, Just to be totally clear, psychopaths are totally different than what happens in syndrome E because syndrome E is essentially otherwise normal people who because of this group contagion can go and do these incredible things. Psychopaths are sort of the individual examples of that. Um, Everybody's been trying to come up with rehabilitative strategies and so far not only do they not work but one of the strategies was to put psychopaths in, in group therapy where they get to sit with the victim's family and so on like that and it turns out that when there was a follow-up study, it turns out it caused them to re-offend more. It made them worse. And the reason is, they listened to people in the group therapy and they thought, oh, I didn't know that when I said this, you would respond like that. So they actually got better at what they were doing. Yes?
2: Yeah. Um, it's a question about neuroimaging and its relevance to the problems that we're talking about, which basically relate to behavior. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering what the application is, because we know that when people's behavior change, obviously you have activity in different parts of the brain and we can do correlational studies which, which can highlight which, which areas are involved when the behavior changes. But how can those neuroimaging studies actually inform how we ought to go about behaving and developing programs to change behavior?
1: So let me, that's a great question, so let me give an example of that. So I mentioned that what we were doing with the with the empathy studies, was coming up with a neural measure of in-group, out-group differentiation. Now, if I asked you, hey, would you care if a person of another religion got stabbed in the hand, you might say, I love all my brethren equally, right? So what you tell me is not necessarily what's actually happening in your brain. And what this gives us is an objective way to quantify different narratives of saying, okay, here are narratives that, are, that we've pulled from around the world that are involved in propaganda and dehumanization. Here are narratives that are involved in rehumanization, and we can measure the effect of those without having to ask the person to make up a story about it, because people will, will lie about that. Thank you.
2: Hi, how are you? Um, I'm not a neuroscientist or a psychologist. I'm a, I'm a games programmer, and uh, I was just wondering. Um, uh, we talked about dehumanization um, through interaction with uh, human beings directly or indirectly. Now, you talked about Anders Breivik trying to dehumanize himself through computer games. Now, uh, what is your opinion? Um, how would it be that if a child is sort of playing lots of violent computer games, would, that be, would this dehumanization transfer over to reality?
1: Thank you for that very important question. People have been running studies on this for years now, and the results seem to be that there's no causal relationship between playing violent video games and acting more aggressive, or becoming dehumanized in this case. There's a strong correlation, which is that people who are real aggressive jerks will often play these games, but, but if you play these six hours a day, it doesn't cause you to change anything that you are. So that's what seems to be the result, is there's no causative thing there. And actually, I'm not even sure that I believe, I mean look, his statement was, I'm such a nice guy, everyone would describe me as caring and sympathetic bullshit. And then he says, you know, and so I went through this dehumanization strategy, and for him it was the video games plus this meditation. But who knows the, the extent to which we can believe his own narrative on that, and whether the video games were, were a part of it in any meaningful way. Okay, I'm just going to answer one more question. Yes. Oh, no, that one got passed.
2: I'm just wondering, in your view, where individual accountability lies on this spectrum, because I guess it's a basic tenet of socialization that we sort of restrain our everyday impulses to, you know, get mad at people, hit people, rape and pillage, etc. So, in giving a scientific basis to this, do you think we're not only diminishing responsibility, but, you know, diminishing our expectations of people? We expect them to behave like sheep, then they're going to act like sheep.
1: That's a very important question. The answer is no, it doesn't diminish individual responsibility at all. What it gives us is the tools to understand the systemic variables that cause situations like that. For better or worse, people who behave badly in Abu Ghraib prison or in any place else, um, they still do have to get punished for many reasons. Justice, it turns out, tries to accomplish many things at the same time. Uh, One of them is just slaking public bloodlust, setting up examples for the next people and so on. So, So the people who commit these tortuous acts in prisons and so on have to get punished. But the importance of studying is not to let them off the hook. It's to try to prevent the next generation from doing it. Thank you very much. I'm going to be out in the lobby. I'll sign books. Thanks.
0: Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared debates, talks, and discussions free on iTunes. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. What are you doing right now?